If you like the podcast, please subscribe and rate on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can follow Germania Divided and United on Twitter and Instagram at GermaniaPod. Hello, welcome to Germania Divided and United. Episode 1.26, Gothic Vigor. When the Visigoths headed south following the sack of Rome at the end of August 410, they brought with them one prize that was clearly more valuable than all the rest. The gold, silver, and silks were nice. The armor, weapons, and food they took would certainly be useful. But far more valuable than all of that was a new addition to their entourage. Galla Placidia, daughter of Theodosius the Great and the sister of the Emperor Honorius. Placidia had been in Rome throughout Alaric's various sieges on the city from 408 to 410, and sometime before the sacking of the city, the Visigoths captured her outside the walls, most likely trying to get out of sight before the occupation began. She remained in their custody for the next five years. Once Alaric died in early 411, his brother Atolf was elevated as king, and immediately had to deal with the problem of finding permanent lands to settle. The Goths had pillaged and raided the Italian peninsula for more than two years, leaving it bare, and their plan to sail to Sicily and Africa was now bust. So in 412, Atolf decided to lead his people back north and into Gaul. But wait, you might be saying, isn't Gaul an active war zone at this point? To circle back, at the end of 410, there were three armies in the Western Roman orbit that were beyond the control of the imperial court in Ravenna. The Goths in Italia, the Vandals and other assorted tribal groups in Gaul and Hispania, and the rebel Constantine III, now based at Arles on the southern Gallic coast. Finally, Honorius gave command of his armies to a capable general, Flavius Constantius, also known to history as Constantius III. Much like Constantine III, this Constantius was not related to the great dynasty of the 4th century. Much as Stilicho had done back in 407 and 408, Constantius prioritized the defeat of the imperial usurper over avenging the sack of Rome. By this point, Constantine had lost the support of many of the leaders in Hispania, and he was at his weakest since he first crossed over from Britannia. In 411, Constantius mustered the forces at his disposal in Italia, marched on Arles, and defeated Constantine III, executing him. I'll add that it was around this time that Constantius also had Olympias, the minister behind the Western Massacre of the Goths, executed as well. While Gaul and the other provinces of the West were now nominally under imperial control, for the most part, local warlords had started to exert influence over the different territories. The Franks controlled the eastern and western banks of the Lower Rhine, the Burgundians were setting up control over the western bank of the Upper Rhine, and the Alans were coalescing around the modern city of Orléans. The Vandals had occupied parts of Gaul and Hispania. We will deal more with their actions during this period in future episodes. So, in 412, Atolf decided to take his people through the Alps and then push west towards the modern region of Aquitaine, occupying the relatively undisturbed regions of southwest Gaul. 
to facilitate an alliance as well as encourage the Visigoths to stay north of the Italian peninsula, Honorius arranged for a sizable payment of gold to greet Atolf when he reached Gaul. Why did Honorius want an alliance with the group that had so recently sacked the Eternal City? Sometime between the fall of Constantine III and the arrival of Atolf in Gaul, a new imperial usurper took the stage. A Roman named Jovinus was proclaimed Augustus in the city of Mainz, under the protection and direction of the Burgundian king Gundahar and the Alan king Goar. Since this area was still nominally part of the Roman political apparatus, these kings needed a Roman alliance to approve their new position in the country. As with the previous elevation of Priscus Attalus by Alaric, by declaring this Gallo-Roman noble as the true emperor, Goar and Gundahar now had formal military commands and a rubber stamp for any policies they wanted to initiate. With the Goths now in the country, they were in a position to be kingmakers, depending on who they would support in this latest civil war. Atolf appreciated the gold that Honorius had sent, but he wanted to evaluate his options and opened up communication with the coalition at Mainz. Unfortunately for Gundahar and Goar, while these discussions were ongoing, they decided to ally with a general fleeing from the court of Ravenna, Saurus, the Gothic general I introduced last week. Saurus, as you remember, was from a rival family to that of Alaric and Atolf, and had attacked them prior to the sack of Rome. So when Atolf learned that Saurus was on his way to Mainz with roughly 30 retainers, he sent a force of 10,000 men to intercept, capture, and kill his rival. In a show of graciousness, Atolf allowed the surviving retainers to join with his people. The attempted alliance between the Northern Confederation and Saurus convinced Atolf to form his own alliance with Honorius, and he agreed to put down this latest usurper. The battles between the Visigoths on one side and the Alans and Burgundians on the other are not well documented, but during these battles, Jovinus was captured and shipped down to Ravenna for execution. With his alliance with Ravenna and the other Germanic tribes chastened, Atolf made a play to ensure both his family and his people a central position in the future of the Western Roman world. In 414, he married Galla Placidia, becoming the brother-in-law of the Western Augustus. In addition to the obvious political implications, Jordanus notes that Atolf was attracted to her nobility, beauty, and chaste purity. While we don't have an unbiased view on Placidia's opinion, I think it is interesting that she is generally noted to be more upset about her future Roman-imposed political marriage than she was about this arrangement with Atolf. Some records even say that she consented to the marriage over the objections of her brother. Showing his long-term ambition, Atolf married Placidia in a Roman marriage ceremony in Narbonne while wearing a Roman general's toga. Jordanus goes on to note that the other tribes, the Franks, the Burgundians, the Vandals, were terrified by this alignment between the Goths and Romans, as united they would clearly be too much of a force for these fledging kingdoms. It is important to note that Jordanus is a Gothic historian, and so his records are going to glorify the Gothic people. Most famously, the Roman historian Erosius quoted Atolf's intentions at length in his Roman histories, and I will quote now from a translation from Stephen Williams. Quote, 
At first, I wanted to erase the Roman name and convert all Roman territory into a Gothic empire. I longed for Romania to become Gothia, and Atolf to be what Caesar Augustus had been. But long experience has taught me that the ungoverned wildness of the Goths will never submit to laws, and that without law, a state is not a state. Therefore, I have more prudently chosen the different glory of reviving the Roman name with Gothic vigor, and I hope to be acknowledged by posterity as the initiator of a Roman restoration, since it is impossible for me to alter the character of this empire." Unquote. Atolf came one step closer to realizing his long-term vision when Galla Placidia gave birth to a son nine months later. Named Theodosius after his grandfather, at the time of his birth, this Gothic Roman child was the only male member of the greater Theodosius family who was not already a Roman Augustus. When Honorius or Theodosius II died, this grandson of Theodosius the Great would have the best blood claim to the imperial throne. But it was not meant to be. Before he was a year old, the baby Theodosius died from a fever, devastating his mother and father. The child was laid to rest in a silver-plated coffin in Hispania, and the opportunity for full integration of the Goths into the Roman political structure was buried with him. Around the time of his marriage to Placidia, Atolf once again had Priscus Attalus proclaimed emperor, and thus received his command as Magister Militum. Unfortunately, as a native of Italia, Attalus had no base of support in Gaul, so this elevation did nothing to secure the position of the Goths. Once Atolf and Galla Placidia were married, Constantius III and other ministers surrounding Honorius convinced him that the Goths were conspiring against him and that he should abandon plans for a peaceful settlement. Constantius moved to Arles and received approval to set up a trade embargo on the Visigoths, denying them any shipments of grain or other food. This action led Atolf to lead the Goths from southwestern Gaul across the Pyrenees into Hispania, establishing a base near the modern city of Barcelona as part of an effort to control Terraconensis, a province covering the north and east of the peninsula. Atolf claimed he had come to the region to liberate the residents of Hispania from a Vandal dominion. Before crossing to Hispania, the Goths burned down the Roman city of Berdigala at the site of modern Bordeaux. No longer of any use to the Goths, Priscus Attalus was sent back to Constantius, who had him exiled. Unfortunately, Atolf did not have much of a chance to establish himself in Hispania. In September of 415, Atolf was betrayed by one of Saurus's retainers, who he had allowed back into the Gothic community. Atolf was assassinated, and in the aftermath, the family of Saurus had much of the remaining Balti family murdered. That put them in charge for mm, roughly one week, before a man named Walia, sometimes reported to be a cousin of Alaric and Atolf, seized power. Taking over in late 415, the biggest issue facing Walia was that Constantius still maintained the blockade of the coast and the Goths were on the brink of starvation. Either late in that year or early in 416, Valia made peace with Ravenna returning Galla Placidia to the Romans and agreeing to serve as Roman imperial troops in Gaul and Hispania. In exchange, the Visigoths received the grain they needed to avoid starvation. 
Once she was back in Ravenna, Galla Placidia was married to Constantius as a reward for all of his good work, a match that she was apparently not pleased with. After being held hostage by the Goths for five years and pressured into a political marriage, now that Placidia was home in the imperial court, her brother forced her into a political marriage. With the Visigoths now allied with Ravenna, Constantius ordered Valia to attack the confederation of Vandals, Alans, and Subai, who occupied Hispania. These tribes had crossed into Gallica Belgica a decade earlier in 406, and they had pushed their way farther into Roman territory until they reached the undergarrisoned and rich lands of Hispania. With the upheaval in Illyria, Britannia, and Gaul over the previous two decades, Hispania was a crucial tax base for Ravenna, and they could not allow it to slip away from their control. From 416 to 418, Valia led successful campaigns against all three groups, including killing the king of the Alans in battle, and capturing the king of the Siling Vandals and sending him as a prisoner to Ravenna. Four decades of both battling against and serving within the Roman army gave the Goths a martial advantage over the other tribes. In the aftermath of these defeats, the entire coalition put themselves under the protection of the Asding Vandals and their king, Gunderic, who occupied the area of modern Galicia. It seems that they had some approval from Honorius to control that area. At this point, Gunderic took the title King of the Vandals and Alans. We will spend more time with Gunderic and his brother, Geyseric, in upcoming episodes. Based on the good work they had done, Constantius III negotiated a fotus with Valia in 418, which gave the Visigoths dominion over the province of Aquitania Secundia, centered around the modern city of Toulouse. This agreement gave Valia and his people control over some of the land of the region, while the remainder was controlled by Gallo-Roman nobility. Critically, the agreement did not give the Visigoths control of any of the Mediterranean coastlands or ports, which was a prize they would continue to work towards for years. There has been some disagreement over time about the exact nature of the economic relationship between the Gallo-Romans and the Visigoths, but it seems that the Visigoths received a smaller portion of the land, likely no more than a third, while also taking over the right to collect the local tax revenue. For the locals, the critical benefit was that they now had a defensive force based in their region and would not need to raise additional taxes in the event of an emergency. The Goths were now the formal Roman army of the region and could govern themselves according to their own laws. The Gallo-Romano nobility in Aquitania Secundia were invited to participate in an annual council of provincial leaders in Arles, keeping them tied to the imperial government and allowing them to voice their opinions on imperial administration. Representatives from all seven of the Gallic provinces participated in this council, though it had no formal powers. This formal treaty would be the legal basis for the Visigothic kingdom that would rule the region for nearly 300 years until the Muslim conquest began in 711. I've been mixing in Visigoth for a while now, but this is truly the start of the kingdom that historians in the 6th century and beyond would describe as the Western Goths. Valia died soon after this settlement, and the Visigoths elevated a man in his late 20s who would lead them for the next three decades, Theodoric I. 
I've seen Theodoric described as both Alaric's grandson and his illegitimate son, though given the math, Alaric was born around 370, Theodoric was born between 390-395, it doesn't seem possible that Theodoric could be Alaric's grandson. Theodoric was tasked with managing the surrender of Roman lands to the Visigoths under the Old Hospitale system, dating to the Republican era, that allowed soldiers to be quartered on private land and required the owner to turn over one-third of the produce to feed and supply the troops. This is an important aspect of the Germanic takeover of the Western Empire that we should pause to reflect on. As we saw with Alaric, in the late 4th and early 5th centuries, most of the tribal kings were looking for an opportunity to carve out a place for themselves within the broader Roman Empire, not to tear it apart. As we see now with the Visigothic settlement with Rome in 418, this eventual takeover was not directly the result of a violent conquest. I certainly don't want to suggest that there was no violence, just that in the end, it was Roman laws and legal precedents that set the stage for a new ruling class. It also meant that for a long time after 418, many people in this Visigothic kingdom would still identify themselves as Roman. This situation was 180 degrees from more modern independence movements that involve a firm severing of ties between a state and their previous ruler. To make studying history easier, we affix a firm date to an event, like saying the Visigoths separated from the Romans in 418, but that was not how the history was experienced to those people. Over the next decade, the Visigoths were alternatively allies and enemies of Rome, as they had been for decades prior. They supported Roman offensives against the Vandals and Subai in the early 420s, but also made attempts to lay siege to and capture the current imperial capital at Arles in 425 and 430, part of their attempt to gain access to ports. They were driven off both times. The first siege was lifted when a young general arrived with reinforcements and drove the Visigoths back into Aquitaine. That young general was Flavius Aetius, son of a general and aristocratic noblewoman from Moesia Superior, and he would become the de facto leader of the Western Empire for two decades, from the 430s to the 450s, that would see later historians referring to him as the last of the Romans. Aetius had a unique upbringing that gave him very specific advantages later in life that helped him on his rise to power. As the son of a noble family, when he was a teenager, Aetius was sent as a hostage to live with Alaric in Illyria from 405 to 408. Alaric apparently took a liking to him, as he requested to keep Aetius as one of his hostages beyond 408, but the request was refused. Aetius was released from Gothic custody, only to immediately be sent as a hostage to the Huns as part of a new treaty. A popular theory among 19th century historians, particularly Bury and Gibbon, was that spending these years among the Goths and Huns had a positive impact on Aetius as a military leader, giving him more of a martial vigor. But even more important, Aetius developed strong relationships with the leaders of these nations, particularly with the Huns, that he was able to leverage later on. After Honorius died in 423, Aetius was sent by his successor to raise a Hunnic army to support his claim to the throne. By the time Aetius returned, however, his candidate was dead, 
and Valentinian III was now Augustus of the West. Despite having backed the loser in this civil war, as Aetius was now at the head of a Hun army, he was able to negotiate a position for himself as Magister Militum in Gaul, which is why he drove off the first Visigothic siege of Arles. Theodoric and Aetius were roughly the same age, and likely spent some time together while Aetius was a guest of Alaric early in the century. This did not necessarily make them natural allies, as each had their own priorities, ambitions, and responsibilities, but there was also no sign of any grudge between the two. The two men would eventually ally together to defend Gaul from the Hun invasion under Attila in 451. For the most part, under the leader of Theodoric and Aetius, the interests of the Romans and the Visigoths were aligned. The only break came in the late 430s. The exact cause is not known, though it seems that it may have been driven by the provincial Romans' resistance to submit to Visigothic barbarians, while Theodoric was simultaneously trying to expand his sphere of influence. Aetius sent a Roman army with Hun auxiliaries who crushed the Visigoths and put them back in their box. Highlighting the confused structure of the alliances during this period, native Gallo-Roman soldiers who fought with the Visigoths had to petition to Ravenna to prevent the Hun soldiers from pillaging their estates in the aftermath. Atolf's death and the return of Galliplacidia to Ravenna represented the last really good opportunity for the Romans to leverage Gothic vigor to revitalize their empire. The two sides would remain allies, but there was no chance for a real effort to integrate the two. So why couldn't the Romans accept revitalization via Gothic vigor? What made accepting Gothic leadership in the early 5th century different from accepting the great emperors of Hispania in the early 1st century and the Illyrian emperors of the late 3rd century? Rome's greatest strength for centuries was adopting and incorporating the best ideas from the territories they conquered. I think there are three key issues. Number one, the Goths had never submitted to the Romans. The various fodera between the Goths and Romans between 382 and 418 did not involve a total surrender of the Goths, so the Romans still saw them as culturally separate. When they assumed imperial dignities, prior provincial nobles could trace back to Italian families. That would have been true for the son of Atolf and Placidia, but he did not survive long enough to become a claimant to the throne. Similarly, the Goths came into the empire rather than the Romans expanding outward. The Romans believed that their empire was supposed to expand forever and that no territory could ever really be surrendered. This came from the old Roman myth of Terminus, the god of boundaries, especially national boundaries. The name Terminus translates as boundary stone and is one of the rare Roman deities that does not have a direct Greek counterpart. Once boundaries were set, it was said that not even Jupiter could move them. The Visigoths occupying and ruling Roman lands went against this national myth of the sanctity of Roman borders. Third, and most importantly, Rome was clearly on the decline in the 5th century. When the empire was strong, I think it was easier for the citizens to look to their provinces for new ideas and leaders. It was easier to be more meritocratic when there seemed to be an abundance of opportunity. As the wealth and strength of the empire was waning, any new power center was logically going to suck power away from the entrenched bases. 
The more I've thought about this, the more I see similarities to the civil rights movement in the United States. The most progress was made during the 1950s and 1960s, as the American middle class was really established. The uncertainty and instability of the last two decades has not been great for ideals of equality. We are going to leave the Visigoths here for now, with their kingdom in its infancy under Theodoric I. Next week, we are going to backtrack a bit and explore the years following 406 from the perspective of the Vandals. The Vandals have been a minor player thus far, but in the 5th century, their strength grew exponentially, eventually leading to the Vandal conquest of North Africa.